Listener supported. WNYC Studios. On Thursday, January 3rd, the 116th United States Congress was sworn in. I now call the House to order on behalf of all of America's children. It's a Congress filled with many firsts. The youngest woman, the first former refugee, the first Native American women. And of course, there was the woman of the hour, whose nomination was preceded by what was probably the first Naughty by Nature reference in the history of congressional records. Let me be clear, House Democrats are down with NDP. Nancy D'Alessandro Pelosi, the once and future Speaker of the United States House of Representatives, I proudly place her name in nomination. May God bless her. May God bless the United States of America. Democrat Nancy Pelosi became the first person in more than 60 years to reclaim the speakership after losing it. We have no illusions that our work will be easy and that all of us in this chamber will always agree. But let each of us pledge that when we disagree, we respect each other and we respect the truth. She stood surrounded by her grandchildren and many other children at the podium, just as she did when she was sworn in as speaker in 2007. With the gavel in hand, she is, as the New York Times recently wrote, the highest ranking and most powerful elected woman in American political history. And although she didn't quite finish her congratulations to the new Congress, she asked the right question before her microphone was turned off. Congratulations, you are now... Now what? Now what happened? Now what indeed? Getting to know the new Congress from the people to the priorities. This is Politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. In November, Democrats picked up 40 seats and control of the House. Republicans expanded their Senate majority by two seats. Today, we are focused on the House, because for the first time in his presidency, Donald Trump will face a divided Congress and the intense scrutiny, oversight, and pushback that comes with it. But before we get into all of that, I wanted to start by introducing you to some of the newest members of this class. There's a lot we already know about this class. It's big, with 101 new members in the House. Democrats have taken the majority with the largest power shift since Watergate. It's also the most diverse in history. But who are these people? Many are coming to D.C. without a background in politics, hoping to change a system nearly everyone agrees is broken. Following the midterms, I spent some time talking with members of the freshman class, both Democrats and Republicans. Hey, everybody. Happy New Year. I'm headed to Washington this afternoon, and our first order of business is to open back up the government. I am so humbled and honored to represent this district, and I promise you that I'll put you first. The first person I called was Democrat Angie Craig. We spoke back in November, shortly after the election. Angie isn't quite as new to politics as many of the other freshmen. This was actually her second time running for this seat. So first of all, congratulations. Thank you. Winning feels a whole lot better than losing. (laughs) Craig beat the Republican incumbent Jason Lewis in Minnesota's 2nd Congressional District. Not an easy one for a Democrat. President Trump won there in 2016. So what made the difference for her this time around? At least in part, Craig credits openness. 
more than anything, voters want authenticity these days. And the second run, um, you know, I cut an ad that said, you know, my wife, Cheryl, and I have four sons. Those were the first words. And it's almost like I just put it out there. And when I put it out there, just as any other candidate would talk about their family, people were like, oh, okay. And so it really wasn't a deal. And it's fascinating. I mean, none of the local media coverage is even mentioned uh, that I happen to be a lesbian. Um, and, And that's awesome, right? That, you know, there's a time we can run based on our own background and credentials and you know, just as open as any other politician would be about their family. And then sort of that's the end of the story of that. And like many of the freshman Democrats I spoke with from districts formerly held by Republicans, Craig says her constituents want to see some compromise. We're never going to find common ground if we don't send people to Washington who are looking for it. I unseated, um, you know, a far right Freedom Caucus type guy, former talk show radio host. And, you know, that guy wasn't looking for common ground on health care or infrastructure on creating jobs. He wasn't looking to find tax cuts for the middle class. And, you know, again, I I need Republicans to send folks who are looking for that, too, before we're going to get to a time back in the country where I think we're just governing. I, you know, I don't have any hesitation if I think it's a, a a bad idea to stand up to the administration and stand with my party. But I also don't have any problem standing up to my party if I think it's a bad idea for the people of Minnesota or if, you know, we don't have a way to pay for it in this country. From Minnesota, we take a trip south, all the way down to Texas, where former NFL player Colin Allred claimed victory over Pete Sessions, a Republican who served his district since its creation in 2003. For Allred, the win here meant a lot. I ran for office here uh, in the town where I was born and raised by a single mother. I uh, went to public schools here. Uh, It wasn't always easy for me uh, growing up here. And I think if you had kind of been there at the early stages, you probably would have not have have thought that, uh, you know, a few years later I would be representing that same area. Allred understands the historic nature of this moment extends well beyond his own personal accomplishment. I absolutely have had the chance to get to know a number of my fellow member-elects, and I think that we represent the most diverse and broadest swath of the country uh, that we've ever sent to Congress. And I think we absolutely are going to change things. There's just no doubt about that. If you just look at the size of this class, uh, if you look at its diversity, not just in terms of race, but also of gender and of age and of life experience, this class already has fundamentally reshaped what the Democratic caucus looks like and what the Congress looks like. And we are coming in, I think, closer to the American people maybe than some of our colleagues who have been there for a while uh, because we have, in many cases, uh, run races that uh, you know, were in districts that were purple or that were changing. And I think we, we have our finger on the pulse maybe of the American people very much right now. And I think what, what I saw and what many of us have talked about is that people are looking for solutions. They don't want us to go there to uh, you know, just gum up the works and to just go after President Trump and, and just continue sort of the partisan wars of the last 20 years. I think there's a deep, deep, deep well of people out there who would like to see their government get some things done and to stop some of the infighting. Uh, I think that they recognize that some of this has harmed us internationally, has harmed us, has led us to not get things done that we needed to be doing. Uh, and they're turned to some of us, I think, from non-traditional backgrounds because they think that we can cut through some of that noise. 
Speaking of cutting through the noise. Call me old fashioned, but I, I believe that I was elected to this office to help people. And that's what I intend on focusing on. That's another new congressman, Democrat Max Rose from Staten Island. His win back in November was one of the night's big surprises. Rose defeated the Republican incumbent Dan Donovan, turning New York's 11th district blue. We presented a bold and clear and simplistic vision for how we can help to both solve people's problems, but also change politics in this country, change the transactional nature of it, try to get some of the toxic money out of politics, and also just quite frankly, stop lying to voters. That's what we ran on. That's also the type of elected official I intend on being because, as I said, you know, no one's vote is guaranteed in my district. And I'm never going to forget that. And God bless them for it. I wouldn't have it any other way. It's easy to be optimistic when your party holds the power. But how are the freshmen on the other side of the aisle settling in in these first days in D.C.? Yeah, it's like finger painting with a blindfold on. You know, you walk in and, you know, orientation, it's, it's right in your face. It's almost like basic training for bureaucrats. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and you, you find out really quick, you know, you're the CEO of your own office, which I'm used to being. Denver Riggleman is the newly elected representative from Virginia's 5th District. And while he likes to have a sense of humor about things, he also feels the weight of responsibility. You're responsible for everything, Amy, from the, you know, from the the office procedural manual all the way to sexual harassment gu- guidelines. You're responsible for every single thing in that office, your own budget, um, and really anything that happens, you're accountable for that. I talked to Riggleman shortly after he returned from a bipartisan trip to Israel organized by the American Israel Education Foundation. You know, for me, it was me, Dan Cranshaw out of Texas, right, and Tim, Bur- Tim Burchett out of Tennessee. You know, and then on the Democratic side, we had David Trone out of Maryland. We had Susie Lee out of Nevada and Elaine Laurie out of Virginia, the second district, you know, right down the road from me. And, you know, it was pretty amazing that once we saw what was happening in Israel, we sort of had we, we had a lot in common with what we thought about, you know, Israeli politics or geopolitical um, issues that they were facing. I'm hoping that when we go in there that we can have this sort of maybe this brand new class bring some a fresh perspective. And so I do believe that there's a moderate wing out there in the Democratic Party and some common sense Republicans that can get together and, and, and maybe make some hay. And Riggleman isn't the only freshman Republican who says he's willing to work with Democrats. I come with the, the view that I'm ready to work with anybody who's ready to advance the objectives that I fought and campaigned for. That's Brian Stile from Wisconsin. Admittedly, a lot of these decisions are going to be in the hands of Democratic leadership. But I do think there are areas kind of, you know, often in the weeds, often a game of inches, uh, where like-minded people can come together and address some of the problems. And I stand ready and willing to uh, to work to get things done. Style sounds a bit like his predecessor, former Speaker Paul Ryan, and it should come as no surprise. So after I graduated from college, I took uh, my first job when I was 22, uh, working for then a guy that you had to usually explain who he was, uh, no longer the case, Paul Ryan, uh, and did legislative and economic work. I was a legislative uh, assistant and legislative aide uh, in his office covering economic issues, in particular budget and tax and other economic items. After his stint working on the Hill, Style spent a decade in the private sector. I come uh, with 10 years experience working in the manufacturing sector, doing a lot of business development work, private sector background, which I think I can bring to the table. Uh, as we look to kind of solve some of the problems facing uh, our country. Uh, How do we work together to get things done? And I think as I was on the campaign trail, there's a lot of dialogue about how do we get more done. And so I think that private sector experience in the manufacturing sector in particular is really helpful. 
While there are 37 freshman Republicans in the House, Style reminded me of another factor at play in the new Congress, one that might present more significant growing pains for the Republican Party. The change will be on some of the members that have been here since 2010 uh, in coming forward because uh, they'll notice the change. I think more than anything is that what, what uh, Republicans and the minority will observe is that a lot of the decision-making is going to be in the hands of Democratic leadership. And so ultimately, a lot of how the House gets its work done, do we get things uh, through, are we solving problems, is now in the hands of uh, Democratic leadership. Um, and so we have to observe how do, how do they govern. So here's what's important to remember about this new class of Democratic freshmen. They're the most diverse in history on many fronts, including a diversity of districts. I chose to speak to Angie Craig, Colin Allred, and Max Rose because they represent the so-called majority makers. These are the folks that flip seats from red to blue, and as such, they're coming into office with a more small-c conservative approach to the office. If they're going to hold on to their seats in 2020, they have to appeal to the independent and more Republican-leaning constituents in their district. Now, of course, there are a lot of new members and returning incumbents who represent districts that are deep blue. Their constituents won't be upset to see more confrontation than compromise. And this is the balancing act for the Democratic leadership team. In order to preserve their majority, folks like Craig and Allred and Rose need to get reelected. But will Democratic members in safer, bluer districts be willing to throttle back? So we know Democrats in the House are facing a delicate balancing act. For more on how they do that, I turned to someone with a little more experience. I'm Stenny Hoyer. I'm the Democratic Majority Leader. Congressman Stenny Hoyer has been in Congress for 40 years. While he and members of the Democratic leadership continue to tamp down talk of impeachment, it's not going to be easy to keep everyone in the caucus in line. Because we're going to go in there, we're going to impeach the motherfucker. What's your response to that? I, I, I don't think that's particularly helpful, uh, but... You know, that's not the caucus. And individual members, uh, I, I think there's a great deal of anger uh, and disappointment uh, directed at President Trump. I don't think there's any secret of that. And I think it manifests itself uh, sometimes in pretty harsh language. Uh, very frankly, the president of the United States has used extraordinarily harsh language, uh, unusually harsh language for a president of the United States and for a candidate for president of the United States. Uh, over the last uh, three or four years, and that engenders response. But uh, uh, what we want to try to do is work together in a positive, constructive way to get work done that makes America better. And that really is our oath of office, and that uh, hopefully is our intent. And yeah, they're going to be hot words from time to time, but uh, we need to get through those and uh, see if we can act constructively. Overall, Hoyer argues that he and Pelosi have experience in keeping a diverse caucus together. Amy, I, I think you recall better than probably most uh, the dynamics uh, in 07 and 08 and 09 and, and 10 when we were in the majority then. We had a large number of blue dogs in the caucus, and uh, we had a progressive caucus was uh, the larger of the groups. Speaker Pelosi and I worked very closely together to ensure that uh, we worked together. 
and that we could be effective. And in fact, we were very effective, and we passed legislation that was uh, historic in many ways. And of course, the Affordable Care Act was the principal example. We intend to do the same thing. Uh, and I've been uh, talking to all of the members, uh, new members in particular, the 62 new members we have there who are extraordinarily able, engaged, focused, knowledgeable uh, class of in the Congress. And I think they're going to make extraordinary contributions. Uh, but my message is, if we want to succeed, if we want to succeed in attaining our agenda, if we want to succeed in, uh, in our agenda of uh, restoring health care opportunities for our people, making sure that drug costs come down, uh, focusing on education and retraining for our people so they can get the jobs that are being created in, uh, in, in this century, if we want to uh, deal with climate change, if we want to deal with gun violence, all of these issues which are critically important, if we want to solve DACA, uh, it will be necessary for us to be unified. And although we will have differences within the caucus, we need in the caucus uh, to come to compromises ourselves uh, so that action is possible. Confrontation is easy to create. Action is more difficult. And I think every one of our members of Congress, uh, whoever they are, understand that and are prepared to work towards that objective. Of course, just four years after taking the majority in 2006 and passing that Affordable Care Act in 2010, Democrats lost 63 seats in the 2010 election and control of the House. Lisa Desjardins covers the U.S. Capitol for the PBS NewsHour, and I asked her how she thinks this tension within the Democratic Party is going to play out. The key to the balancing act is Nancy Pelosi herself. We saw that in the vote for speaker, which at one point there were potentially 30 or 40 members of the Democratic caucus ready to vote no for Nancy Pelosi. And extraordinarily, that number dwindled down to just 12 when it came down to the actual vote. She had conversations with those members and their offices who were voting no, and she knew they were people like Abigail Spamberger who were voting for other people who were in districts that are red, her district near Richmond, Virginia. Uh, she beat a conservative Republican, Dave Bratt, and Pelosi's office essentially you know, said, we understand. Now, this is working right now. <laughs> this is mm-hmm. this is helping bring the the caucus together right now. The other thing helping them, of course, is the president. There's nothing that unifies a party like an opposition president who has shut down government, <laughs> who has taken who has taken yeah. the blame for for shutting down government. I do think in perhaps a month or so we're going to start seeing uh, these divides get more serious, especially as there, we may be waiting for the Mueller report. It may be taking longer than people expect. And you will see some of those more liberal members who, you know, kind of want to rail against the president, calling for more stepped up investigations. It is going to take a minute for the committee's House Oversight especially, House Judiciary, House Intelligence, to really ramp up to the degree they want to. So it is going to be a question of keeping those progressives patient while they have these hearings and or where they plan these hearings. And do these hearings go far enough to make them happy? I, I think we're going to see February, March, we're going to see some of these tensions pop up. And that will be a direct challenge for Nancy Pelosi, how to keep her caucus together and not causing themselves problems with the American public by by going too far. Like, for example, remarks made by newly elected Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, who said, you know, I'm I'm coming here to impeach 
right. the president. She used an expletive to describe him. Do you see that this is like a one-off or this this kind of stuff is going to become part of the daily frustrations for the yeah. leadership? I'm actually informed by the interview you did with Colin Allred, that other freshman, mm-hmm. and he's one of the co-presidents of this Democratic caucus freshman class. He sort of nailed this feeling of this freshman class. We are here to change things. And, and then he went one step further, which is you don't always hear. He said, and we are going to change things. They are a more self-aware and self-possessed group of freshmen than I usually see in Congress in that many of them have a lot of life experience. They come in with their eyes a little more open, not fully, but a little bit more open um, than usual to understanding that those in power now are going to try and get them to conform. It's hard to tell if in this moment a statement like that is just an expression of, no, we are going to change things. We are different than you, current members of Congress, and we are expressing that. Is that just sort of an opening statement of defiance? Or is that something that is going to stick with us for months and months? I do think Democrats, absolutely, they're going to have the same thing that the Republicans had, which we will, they will have sort of members on their flanks, you know, who are going to say things that are not in line with leadership and embarrass the leadership, but that speaks to their base in in a very powerful way. And it is going to be a question of managing that just as Republicans have had years and years of problems trying to deal with the Freedom Caucus. The question is, will it be as disruptive? Lisa Desjardins is a correspondent for the PBS NewsHour. And if you want to hear more from my conversation with Majority Leader Steny Hoyer, Check out our podcast for the full interview. So you remember from the top of the hour with all of those fresh-faced, idealistic congressmen and women itching to make a difference? Yeah, about that. A lot of what happens over the next year or so is going to depend on two people, Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump. Right. That is Congressman John Yarmuth. Representing the 3rd District of Kentucky and the new budget chair in the House of Representatives. And we will be sending a lot of legislation to the Senate that is broadly popular in the country. And it's going to be up to them to decide whether they want to build a record of a legislative accomplishment leading up to 2020, or whether they just want to stop everything and demonize Democrats. I spoke to him while he was in Kentucky, getting ready to make the trip back to Washington. In about two hours, I'm going to fly back to D.C. Actually, I spoke to several new committee chairs about their hopes for the new Congress in the days before the new session began. These are the folks who've been on the Hill for years, some for decades. They were ranking members of these committees with very little power when Republicans ran the show, and now they're in control. So I wanted to know what their priorities are for this new year. My name is Jim McGovern. I'm a U.S. congressman from the 2nd Congressional District of Massachusetts. And I'm the chairman of the Rules Committee. My first job is to draft a rules package for this Congress. And it is a, a package which encourages bipartisanship, which sets forth a, you know, a process where the House will actually work, where committees will actually have to do their job before bills come to the floor. You know, where bipartisan ideas will be rewarded um, and be and will be brought to the floor for debate. We're going to have a more accommodating Congress. We're going to run this place like professionals. We're going to respect all points of views, even views that I disagree with. Congressman Adam Schiff from Burbank, California, and I know that I'm being recorded. He's the new head of the Intelligence Committee. Well, there are a number of important areas of oversight that we need to do. 
a deep dive, uh, certainly on Saudi Arabia, the war in Yemen, as well as the issues around North Korea, the continuing challenge from China. But as in terms of the Russia investigation, there are a number of investigative threads we're not allowed to pursue by the current majority. And one that has concerned me a great deal is the issue of whether the Russians were laundering money through the Trump Organization, and that might be leverage that the Russians have over the president of the United States. Did you catch that? Schiff said that his committee is interested in digging into the question of whether the Trump Organization was used to launder Russian money. That seems like kind of a big deal. And not something the president is going to be happy to see from the man he's dubbed Little Adam Schiff. Then there's the Ways and Means Committee. This is the big kahuna of committees. They have jurisdiction over stuff like taxes and trade and Medicare and Social Security. The man in charge? Congressman Richard Neal. Out of the box, we're going to hold some hearings on the tax bill that the Republicans passed. And there's still not a lot of knowledge as to what actually was included in that bill. And we're hearing from a lot of people as to how they felt that the bill came up short. And the fact that that bill was written without one public hearing or with without one expert witness I think that there's a time for us now in the the near future to immediately vet what was in that legislation. At the same time, I intend to hold hearings on infrastructure immediately. I hope out of the box the committee will entertain a ban on pre-existing condition uh, proposals that Republicans have offered and used a court in Texas to uh, make their case. But I also think that having been on that committee for a long period of time, that There are some men and women on that committee who are of goodwill, and they recognize the need for some of these issues to proceed. And Congressman Yarmouth wants to try something new in his committee, a more expansive role in oversight and an opportunity to spotlight hot-button topics like climate change and immigration. We're going to consider ourselves the oversight committee on the budget, and therefore the oversight committee for the taxpayers. So we're going to hold hearings on climate change and how it impacts the budget, on um, immigration and how it impacts the budget. We're going to look at health care, specifically Medicare for all, and how that might impact the budget. We're going to look at artificial intelligence and how that will impact the budget going forward. So there'll be a very different look in the budget committee. It'll be much more future-oriented, long-term, longer-term thinking about the many challenges that we face and how those challenges might impact the budget and therefore the taxpayers going forward. Okay, so there are going to be a lot of hearings, but what about actual lawmaking? Do these senior members hold any hope of passing bipartisan legislation with Republicans in control of the Senate and President Trump in the White House? Here's Congressman Neal. Everything that we do can't be seen as a reaction to Donald Trump. And I think that there's some room here for the possibility of enshrining the ban on pre-existing condition, addressing retirement issues across the country, strengthening Social Security and Medicare. And the administration has indicated clearly that they're interested in a big infrastructure program, which I think, again, there's a huge appetite for across the country. So I think in those instances where we can find a cooperation by all means, but in other instances, Uh, where the president decides that uh, the atmosphere is going to be riven with conflict, I think that, that we have to meet him on that basis. But where cooperation prevails, we should embrace it. Congressman Yarmouth is not as optimistic when it comes to compromise with the president. The only thing I'm confident about Donald Trump is that he is an unreliable negotiator. And I don't hold out any hope that he's going to be willing to work with us. 
On the other hand, if he actually is going to be a candidate in 2020, which I doubt he will be, but if, if he is, then uh, he may see some value in, in working. And Congressman McGovern argues that Congress is acting in a bipartisan way. Take this government shutdown, now entering its third week. The problem was the president who had a temper tantrum. He's the problem. Uh, the, the continuing resolution passed the Senate by a voice vote unanimously. Not a single person objected. I mean, you, you can't get any more bipartisan than that. Beyond policy, there's also the question of whether these committees will open investigations into the president himself, like, say, asking for his tax returns. As the new chair of the Ways and Means Committee, Congressman Neal is the guy who can request them. So I asked him about it. One of the other pieces of jurisdiction that you have is the power to get tax returns of any citizen, including the President of the United States. Is that something that you're planning on doing? Yes, it is. And we intend to do that, uh, making sure that uh, not only is our position clear, but it legally meets all requirements. So the uh, advisors that we have at the Ways and Means Committee are beginning to prepare that case now. And I think that presidents since Gerald Ford have all done that on a voluntary basis. And I would hope that President Trump... Carnegie Hall is one of the most famous concert venues in the world. The first time I walked on the stage, I felt like my feet were moving, but they were not touching the floor. Join us for If This Hall Could Talk, a new podcast that explores the history of this iconic landmark through the unique items in its archives. I'm your host, Jessica Vosk, and together we'll explore how the past shaped the culture we live in today. Listen to If This Hall Could Talk wherever you get podcasts. would submit to a voluntary request. But I also think that in this instance here, that there's broad support for seeing those tax forms. Now, it's really unlikely that the president is going to volunteer those, correct? I've noticed that. But with these newfound subpoena powers, will Democratic members in Congress work themselves into a frenzy and let all policymaking fall by the wayside? Congressman Yarmouth says no. This is one area where I think leadership will be involved in terms of to provide some coordination among basically the three committees that will be doing those. So you, you have Adam Schiff, Intelligence, and the Oversight and Government Reform Committee with Elijah Cummings, and then Judiciary with Jerry Nadler. So th- those are three out of the 19 committees I think we have. The rest are all policy-making committees, basically, mm-hmm. and all of those chairmen and women have their own legislative agenda. So while there will be, I'm sure, very intensive investigations in three committees, you're going to have a lot of policy work being done in the others. And Congressman Neal says this is going to be about more than just the president. The mission statement of the Democratic Party is not going to be based upon revenge. It's going to be based upon the idea of examining complex issues and hopefully coming up with reasonable solutions. Congressman McGovern told me to look on the bright side, so to speak. Nothing could be worse than the last Congress. Nothing. And I mean nothing compares to what we just went through. We had the most closed Congress in the history of our country. More bills came to the floor under a completely closed process where nobody, Democrats or Republicans, could offer amendments. We had more bills come to the floor that never went through committees, that never had hearings, never had markups, never had anything. They just mysteriously appeared and came to the floor under a rigged process. Uh, what we saw during these, this last session of Congress was something that I hope we never see again. 
and I don't want my legacy to be that I presided over a Congress that was as closed as the previous Congress. I want I want us to bring some integrity back to this House. I want us to run this place in a way that's more respectful, um, where all ideas, you know, bipartisan and sometimes even partisan ideas, have an opportunity to be uh, br- brought to the floor, debated and voted on. That's the hope. But of course, living up to these expectations is tough, especially if Democrats want to see a more aggressive legislative agenda and action. Let's be real for a minute. Getting anything significant through the House that will ultimately pass the Senate and get signed by the president is not likely. That's going to require a level of cooperation and trust that hasn't been apparent for the last two years. That means that these committees are going to be where a lot of the action will reside. They'll decide the priorities and focus for Congress, some of which will be on policy. But most of the media attention, of course, will be on what they uncover that relates to the president. Okay, so you've got these new chairmen and women of the committees in the House, and they've got subpoena power, and they want things from the president and his administration, like, say, his tax returns. But like Congressman Neal just admitted, no one's expecting the administration to just hand this stuff over. So to understand how this power really works and what the rules are, I turn to Molly Reynolds. I've heard the term subpoena cannon used to describe what we should be expecting from House Democrats. Molly is a senior fellow of governance studies at the Brookings Institution. And yes, she says it's going to be more complicated than just a committee chair asking for a document, issuing a subpoena and then just getting it. Historically, the teeth of the subpoena power that Congress has has not necessarily been in actually using the subpoena power to get people to appear or to get documents um, out of the executive branch. It's really been as kind of a threat to backstop uh, requests for information. I think that looking ahead to the next two years, um, there's not a lot of indication that uh, executive branch agencies will necessarily turn over information willingly, put up witnesses willingly, in part because I think that the Trump administration and President Trump may in fact be looking for a fight on some of these issues. I think they may see some political upside to having a fight with a democratically controlled House um, over some of these issues. And so one thing that I think may happen is that we'll see committees issue subpoenas. Um, The executive branch will claim that they are not going to comply with them for reasons of executive privilege. And then we'll be in for um, a lengthy court fight. How easy or hard is it for an agency or a person within that agency to claim executive privilege? I think one thing that's really important to keep in mind in terms of compliance with requests from congressional committees is that it very quickly becomes a very political exercise. Um, And I think, you know, we've seen great examples of this over the past several years, not necessarily the past two years when there's been very little oversight done, but certainly in large parts of the Obama administration, where a lot of the oversight that House Republicans in particular conducted, and here I'm thinking of things like the Special Committee on Benghazi, a lot of what the goal of that effort was, 
was um, to just elevate very publicly a set of issues that Republicans thought were politically advantageous to them. And so I think that as Democrats are thinking about how to pursue um, oversight in the new Congress, they're going to want to be careful and are going to want to stay as kind of fact-based and careful as possible. I mean, one thing that we know, and this isn't a new phenomenon, is the idea that under divided government, we'll see the party that doesn't control the White House try to be more aggressive in overseeing an opposite party-controlled administration. There's a real incentive politically to try and investigate your partisan opponents um, in the executive branch. And there are ways that that can be done carefully and thoroughly that avoids just kind of, again, partisan gotcha uh, activities. But there can be a real temptation to fall into that trap. So the other night, the new House Rules Committee put out their rules for the next Congress. This happens when a new party comes to charge. They get to set a new set of rules for how business is conducted within the House. Talk to us about this issue of the the acronym is PAYGO, that it seems already a number of progressive Democrats they are opposed to. Yeah. So um, PAYGO, um, and specifically the change in uh, the opening day rules package would um, establish a point of order, um, the ability for someone to raise an objection on the floor against any bill that has a net effect of increasing the deficit or reducing the surplus. And so progressives have been expressing some concern. And so one concern that they have is that it would hamstring uh, the ability of Democrats to try to pass some of their bigger, more progressive policy ideas like Medicare for all or climate change legislation, that sort of thing. I think a couple of important things to keep in mind is that if you have a majority who's in favor of a hypothetical bill that would violate the PAYGO rule, you also probably have a majority who are willing to vote to waive the PAYGO mm. rule in that particular situation. In general, the little bit of a dust-up that we've seen over this is one of um, a series of symptoms of this division that exists within the Democratic caucus in the House between more progressive members and some relatively more moderate members. One change that Republicans made back when they were in charge, I think it was around 2015, a rules change that they made gave some of their committee chairs more unilateral discretion on being able to issue a subpoena. They didn't have to ask the ranking member if it was okay that they did this. They could actually do this unilaterally. Is that something that will still be in place yeah, as far as I know, Democrats don't have plans to uh, to change that. Some committees may choose to take different particular uh, tacks in implementing um, that rule. I mean, even if a committee chair has that power, he doesn't have to use it. He could choose to engage in consultation with the minority party in uh, choosing how to issue subpoenas. I think one thing that, again, different Democratic committee chairs in the House will have to decide is how exactly do they want to run their um, oversight operations. 
aspirations? What issues do they want to prioritize? Because, you know, some of the issues that are on the table for us to talk about are really about President Trump uh, personally. So things like House Ways and Means um, going after Trump's tax returns. But also a lot of this really is policy, thinking about things like the policy choices that brought us the family separation crisis of the border last summer, thinking about the administration's decision not to defend the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act in court. They're really policy questions. And so even in some of those situations, thinking about, well, is there any space for bipartisanship? Is there any space for anyone to work across the aisle? And if there's not, Democrats, I don't think, should just shy away from using the power that they have. But I think that there's latitude for individual chairmen to make decisions about how to run their committees and how to conduct oversight individually. Molly, thank you so much for coming and helping us unpack all of this. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Molly Reynolds is a senior fellow of governance studies at the Brookings Institution. All this hour, we've been talking about the new Congress. We asked you for your expectations. My name is John Barrett. I'm calling from Orland, Pennsylvania. Don't see the opportunity for much progress. My name is Laura, and I am from Forest Grove, Oregon. I fully expect the new Congress to be completely ineffective. This is Mickey Curry from Massapequa Park. I expect trouble. Not a lot of hope out there, and that's not a surprise. Public opinion of Congress is pretty dismal. According to Gallup's most recent data, just 18 percent approve of the job Congress is doing. The House of Representatives has a reputation for being a bit rowdy. There are 435 members, after all. That's more than four times the number in the Senate. But did you ever wonder where that number came from? It's 435 because in the 1910s and the 1920s, Congress couldn't agree how to add more members. And then they decided, well, maybe we have enough. So it's been that way for over a century now. That's Lee Drutman. He's a senior fellow in the political reform program at New America. And he has an idea for fixing the dysfunction in the House. Make it bigger. Wait, really? Congress itself would be a much more representative institution if there were more members. At 435, it's hard for Congress to be really a representative sample of the country, which it was intended to be. Uh, Congress, although more diverse now than it was before the 2018 election, is still predominantly an institution of older, whiter men. And it doesn't really reflect the country. Have a bigger Congress, it's more representative of the country. I think ultimately it would create more space for new coalitions to form, something a little bit more like a multi-party system uh, in which you'd build coalitions on issue-by-issue basis. Leadership wouldn't be able to be so top-down. You'd have a a more uh, vibrant committee system, more vibrant subcommittee system, which arguably is is how Congress has worked best, if if you want to look at when Congress was most productive from about the 1960s to the the 80s, was when there was a real thriving committee system and a subcommittee system. And I think that's exactly what you would wind up having with a much larger house. Yeah, I mean, to me, that is the most exciting part of it, right? The theory that we can really create different kinds of coalitions that today are not possible in a house that has many more people and the interests are going to be much more localized. Tell me how big you think the house should be. How many members do you think would be a good place to start? And that would mean how many people in a congressional district would be represented by a member? 
So I'm going to go back to what it was uh, 1912 when we got to 435. It was about 200,000 to one, and that would take us to 1,600 members in the U.S. House, which is a pretty serious increase, although it still puts us on the high side uh, in terms of, of international comparisons on the number of constituents per representative. I mean, in the U.K., it's 100,000 to one. In Germany, it's, it's pretty similar. The only other comparable democracy that, that would be over that is Japan at 270,000 or so to one. So it still puts us on the high side. So, Lee, as someone who I pride myself on knowing all of the congressional districts in the country and who represents those districts, I can barely keep up with the new members of Congress elected every two years. How on earth could having maybe 1,600 members not turn into total, utter chaos? Well, I mean, it it would be a little bit more chaotic, that's for sure, but maybe chaos is a good thing. Uh, if it creates fluidity and, and responsiveness. Sure, members might not get to know each other, but they don't really get to know each other now. Already, Congress is kind of a big, chaotic institution, particularly the House. I think what you'd see if you had a much larger House is you'd see this decentralization of power in the House, which I think would loosen some of the, this binary hyperpartisanship and would create some space for new coalitions that cut across the way that the the parties are split right now. And then we, of course, get into the important question of how that House then works with the much smaller United States Senate, especially a Senate that could be controlled by one party, right? And so you could get a whole bunch of bills making it through the House with these diverse, interesting new coalitions, And then they get to the Senate and just hit a total roadblock. How could this process actually push legislation beyond just the House? Well, the Senate was designed to be the place where the the passions of the people were cooled, and the Senate is the place where legislation goes to die. So I have a proposal, uh, an idea that that's been in my mind, but I'm gonna I'm gonna put it out there. See what people think is is a reverse filibuster in which the the Senate has to vote on any bill that gets 60 percent of support in the House and can vote up or down, but it but it has to vote on it. That would keep the Senate from being an entire roadblock. There, I think there'd be a lot of pressure on the Senate to bring up bills that are popular in the House. The other big divide we have in this country, as you very well know, is geographic. Right, that there's a rural-urban divide that has gotten even more significant. And um, tell me how increasing the size of the house would impact that. It seems to me that it would make that rural-urban divide even worse with rural legislators feeling like, oh, my gosh, we're losing all of our influence. Obviously, the areas of growth in this country aren't coming in places like Nebraska or Kansas or North Dakota? Well, certainly you would have more representatives who would represent the broader spectrum of the country. But, I mean, the reality is that that rural America is less than 20% of the population now. uh, It's classified as rural. And the the Congress should reflect the broader population of the country. And right now, because of the way districts are drawn, rural America has a disproportionate influence in the U.S. House. So I, I think the House should represent the diversity of the country fairly, not in a distorted way, which it does now. 
And do you see this as sort of an all or nothing thing? Like, forget about just increasing it by 10 or 15 seats or 20 seats. You got to you got to go for 1600 or 1000 or not really try at all. I mean, I'm a believer in, in doing it in a really big way. Some people have proposed to go back to what the framers would have intended if we got to this big of a country, which would be about 6,000. That was actually, I mean, this is, this is the funny, this is the fun bit of history is that the original First Amendment was going to be an apportionment amendment that Madison's initially proposed 12 amendments, of which only amendments 3 through 12 became the Bill of Rights. But amendment number one was that you were going to fix the number of constituents to representatives at 30,000 to 1, up to 100 members, 40,000 to 1, up to 200 members, and then after that, 50,000 to 1. And that was as high as, as he could conceive of going. Now, that, that passed the Congress. It was always just one state short of getting the, the requisite three-quarters of states to, to approve it. Lee Drutman, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, it's my pleasure. Lee Drutman is a senior fellow in the Political Reform Program at New America. Here's my take. More members in Congress could lead to a more diverse and more accountable House. But like a six-lane highway that ultimately runs into a two-lane bridge, the Senate would be a huge speed bump and potentially return us back to gridlock. That's all for us today. Remember, you can always find us on Facebook. And of course, call us anytime at 877-8-MY-TAKE or send us a tweet. I'm at Amy E. Walter, and the show is at The Takeaway. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Amy Walter. This is The Takeaway. It's the Takeaway Podcast. Putin would like to see the liberal world order fall apart. People of color have always understood that the American dream was a fantasy and an ideal. There is a crisis of institutional decay in our country. The risk of sea level rise is going to sink us before the seas ever do. Us as men, we have to start doing our work. May your rage be a force for good. For a daily podcast that breaks through the noise, subscribe to The Takeaway wherever you get your podcasts.